So it's been a while since I've been able to uh, teach in person. I would say it's been months, but actually it's been like an hour. Um, but before uh, our first service, it had been months since I at least taught anyone live, whether it be in person or online. I, I did some, some lessons online, but those weren't live and been editing a lot of videos and writing some children's lessons and doing some other stuff like that that I enjoy, but not quite the same as being able to teach people live. So thankful to be able to be back to that. So this morning I'm thinking of what is the most tired that you've ever been? And for some of you, it's like right now. And until you bring coffee back to the foyer, every Sunday will be the most tired I've ever been. But I just want to encourage you while we, while we keep bearing through this time, you can bring a big old fashioned like giant Stanley thermos next week. You know, maybe... Maybe, um, you know, people will become your friend quite quickly if they weren't already. So, um, but when I think of times where I was kind of like at my most tired, I think of when both my kids were born, because listen, not easy being the dad. I mean, there's, there's no, you have to wait for hours and no one gives you any, any kind of drug that knocks you out or anything. So I just want to say, you know, in light of Father's Day last week, I'm just reminded it, it's tough. Um, I feel like I can get away with the joke a little more since at least my wife's here this time. But I also think of other times that I was at my most tired. And I think of college. You know, I had a, I have a bachelor's in student ministry. It was, it was my degree. And I say that because when you get a ministry degree, you don't have many exams. Instead, you just have tons of papers. And they're all due like the same week. And you often don't get the prompt until a week or two before. So it's not like you just have months. I see Bruce nodding. He understands. And uh, it's not like you get like two months a heads up so that you can just work ahead. It's no, it's the last week or two. Uh, You just have to write paper after paper. My very last semester of college, I pulled what was going to be my last all-nighter. And, uh, uh, you know, it was. But And I was actually at, in my old church office, I was um, only part-time at the church then, and I'm finishing up these papers, and I had to turn in tons of stuff, like an outline of, uh, I had a, a philosophy of ministry, a, a bunch of like little papers, and I'm hole punching. It's like five in the morning, the sun's come up, and I'm just so tired. I'm just so ready to be done. Like literally, I have to go drop these things off, like at my student men office, and then the degree is over. And I like drop the hole punch, and like, like confetti, the little pieces of paper pop out, and they go like everywhere. And like, like just fall to my knees at five in the morning and just like, this has to end. This is the worst. And uh, thankfully, degree's over and hopefully I never go back to school and have to deal with it again. But I think of these moments when I talk about the most tired I've been, but if we're a little more serious, we probably have all been tired recently. Tired of a lot of different things. Um, you know, I see memes going around that say, can we just call it a year? Like, can July 1st be like New Year's Eve and we can just say, all right, 2020, you had your shot. Like, it's time for 2021 right now. And for various reasons, like, we're just, a lot of us are like, we're over this year. You know, at the end of 2019, we're like, woo, 2020. And they're like, ooh, no, I don't like this. By March, we're all like, oh, no. And, you know, we have this great disruption in life between Corona and, you know, at first, in some ways, that might have been good. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you're like, I just had to work the same job every day. I, like, it wasn't different for me. Some, some of us might have had a big drastic change, and at first maybe you got a lot more sleep. And if you're an introvert, maybe for a week that was great. And, uh, but eventually, you know, we, we get tired of it. And fast forward as the year has went on and different things have happened, and now it's probably a lot of ways that, like, I'm, there's just 
so many debates and, and things and probably going online, I know it can be tiresome. And there's just a lot to honestly be tired of right now. But my question for this morning is what is God tired of? And we're gonna jump into Amos 5 here in a minute. But I think as we keep walking back into normalcy and, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, fortunately things, you know, with like virus and stuff ha- hasn't fortunately been as bad here as other places and stuff. So we've been able to kind of step back in normalcy a little quicker than other areas. But as we step back into normal, we need to ask, what does God want of us? You know, the, the kind of perspective we've gotten through these months has been good in a lot of ways. And we've been able to ask a lot of questions about our lives. But have we stopped and asked, what does God want us to return to? And there's probably, and I'm going to argue today, there's things that God doesn't want us to return to. So what does a new normal look like as far as what God actually wants for us? Because it's easy to just go back to doing everything the same way and not ask the question, what is God tired of? If you could turn to Amos 5, it's going to be our main passage today. Just a little background on Amos. If you have no idea who Amos is, it's okay, we'll help. Amos is a farmer who lives during the reign of a king called Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II is known by a lot of the prophets to be like the, the worst of the worst. He's one of the worst kings that Israel's ever seen. At this time, the kingdom is already split. So what was once called Israel has been split, and Judah's the south, Israel's the north, and Judah lives close, to, or I'm sorry, Amos lives close to that border. God calls him to go up north to go to Israel and preach. You're going to hear places in this chapter mentioned like Bethel. Bethel is a place where they built an altar because no one could go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. So like, all right, we have to build this altar, even though God tells them not to do that. They also end up adding idols in. You're going to hear references to that. So Amos is, is a guy that, that became a prophet because that's what God called him to. And he had to go speak out against a bunch of things that are going wrong. And Jeroboam II was successful in a lot of ways. In, in military and economic ways, he was able to expand and get more land. And he, so in some respects, he was successful. But he was corrupt and evil, and God sent Amos to call that out. All right, Amos chapter 5. Listen to this message that I am singing for you, a lament house of Israel. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will only have a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left in the house of Israel. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood also throw ju- righteousness to the ground. The one who made the Pileads and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea, pours it out over the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and falls on the fortress. God's establishing, reminding them who he is. And in this next verse, he's going to start saying, this is all the problems I have. This is what I'm tired of seeing in Israel. They hate the one, they being the Israelites, hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. And they despise the one who speaks with integrity. 
Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live in the Lord, the God of armies, who will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says there will be wailing in all the public squares. God's describing what's going to happen as judgment does come. They will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Next, God's going to talk about the day of the Lord, the, um, which can mean different things in Old Testament versus New, but it's, it's justice that they awaited. It's God restoring things. But this is what God has to say about that coming day of judgment. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hands against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. We're going to end the chapter there. So God sends Amos to, to speak out against numerous sins. We see from Amos, we can, we can learn what some of these are. Amos 2, 6 through 7 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, meaning there's more and now there's either, there was three and now there's four, there just keeps being more. It's a way of saying that. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Those are two very different problems there, but God's laying out different sins. Sins of idolatry, sins of idolatry, and sins of injustice. Neglect against those who are suffering, taking advantage of poor. Amos 3, 13 through 15. We see another one of these little snippets of what is wrong. What is Amos so angry about? Because think about it. You think of like Psalm 23, where God is the shepherd, and usually you have a painting, and it's like a beautiful, perfect little lamb, and you're like, I'm a beautiful, glowing lamb, and Jesus is glowing, and, and it's like a real happy, uplifting uh, psalm, and we need verses like that, but we also need passages like we're going to get at today. Amos three thirteen through 15, we're going to hear what God was so angry about. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel, on the day I punish Israel for his crimes, the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I'll address that in a second. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. The, uh, it's easy to glance over the altar and not 
not realize what's going on, but basically, when you would take a sacrifice to the altar, you would take some blood from the animal and you would smear it onto the horns. Um, thankfully, with, with Jesus, we don't have to learn and uh, memorize all these things. But since they had not yet had Jesus come and die, part of their sacrifice was they put blood and they put on the horns of this altar. So it's easy to glance over God saying, I'm going to saw those horns right off the altar. But what he's literally saying is, I'm going to take the one chance you have at forgiveness, the way that you would seek forgiveness from me, and I will take it away. Which is a pretty terrifying thing. He's going to say, here's the altar, and I'm removing it from you. If we flip back to Amos 3, uh, 1 and 2, we're going to see here that See, in the first chapter, God lays out numerous nations, and he's talking about all these other countries. And we know if you read through the Old Testament, you know pretty quickly that a lot of the other nations are doing terrible, awful things. They're sacrificing babies, they're sacrificing people, they're doing horrific things, and then God calls his people out from that. So in Amos 1, you're, you, you hear about Tyre and, and Edom and, and all these other countries and God saying, they've done this and I will stand against them. They've done this, I will re- reduce them to nothing. And it's almost like he circles around and points out every neighbor. But if you look at it on a map right in the bullseye, I'm the, not the first to notice this, but right in the bullseye is Israel. And, he, and God spends way more time in Amos talking about what Israel has done than he does any of those other countries. Here's why in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you. Out of all the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Not that God's not punishing the others, but he looks at Israel and he says, you should have known better. I went down to Egypt. I pulled you out. I walked you across a seabed. I saved you. I took you to Mount Sinai. I gave you the Ten Commandments so that you could have a much better life than everyone else. I pulled you out from these awful countries that, that bow down to false gods and pharaohs. And, and because of that, they have different systems of morals and, and they have all these injustices. And I pulled you out from that. I taught you how to live. You spent 40 years in the wilderness and desert and I walked alongside you. I gave you rules. I gave you laws. I gave you a new way, a new life. And I even gave you your own piece of land so that you can make your own country where these things don't have to happen. And God says, yet, years from now, here we are, and you're no better. And that's why I'm so mad at you. Because I took you from out of nothing. I made a prosperous nation for you. And I look now, and what has it become? A place where people bow to idols, bow to false gods, engage in all sorts of sins, and sins of things they do and sins of things they don't do because they neglect and they let people fall to the wayside. See, who we worship will define morality and how we take care of people. So one of the issues, there's a lot of issues with bowing down to an idol, a golden calf. One of them is that if you bow down to a statue that you made, you get to dictate what the rules are. That statue isn't talking. You get to say, well, the statue said this is, I don't have to take care of these people. Poor people don't matter because the statue said they don't matter. You can literally make up whatever you want instead of God who gives you the rules himself. There's a lot of ways back then, um, 
a lot of the ways that people wouldn't be taken care of, a lot of times it tied to land and if you owned it. So a lot of times widows uh, would fall by the wayside after a husband would die that they wouldn't always be taken care of. Orphans, foreigners, these are the sorts of people that, that um, obviously someone who had some kind of medical condition. In the New Testament, we know a lot about lepers. These are the kind of people that would be forgotten. And God keeps talking about this in the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 1, I'm just going to reference it now, but, but he says basically the same thing. He talks about your, your, your festivals and, and your solemn assembly. They, they stink to me. He says, you make incense, but I don't even like the smell of it. And listen, a solemn assembly, that's just where you come together to pray, maybe to fast, to, to, to confess sin, and, and, and a solemn meaning a serious time they are coming together. And God tells them to do that elsewhere in the prophets. He says, call an assembly, call a fast. It's not like this isn't what they're supposed to do. But God says, I don't want it here because you're doing it without caring for these people. You're doing it while worshiping an idol at the same time. You're doing it while doing these sins. So I don't want this worship. When we, um, you know, when we talk about justice in the Bible, there's two words that kind of come up in this Amos 5 chapter that we need to understand. Amos 5, that last verse that I read to you, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. I know you all came here for a Hebrew lesson today, so we're going to get it. If, it. if this was children's church, I'd make you repeat it with me, and you'd make like a little sign that you'd run around with. You can do that if you want. I won't tell you what to do. If you want to run around with a little sign, just stay distant, you know. Um, but these two, there's two words we need to understand here. But let justice. The word justice, the Hebrew is mishpat. The reason I'm telling you that is because justice a lot of times when we talk about it, you know, we can think of justice that a law would give or a court would give. And sometimes this word can be used that way. But we see it used very differently in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 18, I, I don't think we have it on the screen, but it says this is, or maybe we do have the one, I don't remember. This is the priest's share. This is the priest's share from the people who offer sacrifice, whether it's an ox, a sheep, or a goat. This is describing the tithe, the the, the food and the items that you had to give to a priest in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it says this is the priest share, but that word share is literally mishpat, so justice. So when you give the priest your tenth, your tithe, you are giving them their justice. You are giving them the thing that they are deserved or owed as God sees it. So justice in the Bible, mishpat, isn't just what a law has said or, or what a court has said. It is literally something that could be owed to you. Mishpat can be defined as actions taken to, in, in, uh, to correct injustice. One more Hebrew word, tzedakah. In Amos 5.24, it's, but let justice flow like the water and righteousness, or tzedakah, like an unfailing stream. This word can be defined as right relationships, equity despite social difference, meaning no matter how much money you have or where you came from or whatever kind of social differences you might have, it's saying you need to treat someone rightly. In, Deuter, uh, I'm sorry, in Zechariah 8, God says, when he's bringing the people, he's talking about what's going to happen after exile. He says, they will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous. I will be faithful and sedekah to them as their God. When you put these two words together, as the Old Testament does over two dozen times, you can, uh, it can be translated as a phrase that has baggage today. But quite literally, a lot of people have rendered this as social justice. 
Mishpat and Sedekah, when put together, can be said in English as social justice. Now, there's baggage to that phrase today that might not be included here. But it's, do you give justice to people? Do you give Mishpat what they deserve? Do you give them how they should be treated as you deal with people? And God's saying this needs to flow. This needs to be like water rushing out of the temple. This needs to be like water rushing out of my people. Justice should flow from them. And because it doesn't, I don't like their worship. See, there's a lot that we can learn from uh, this season in life. I think of Pastor Brian has been preaching not only the last few weeks, but even early on when we weren't having physical services you know, he was talking about a lot of us were learning a lot of things. We were looking at our time, our priorities. I mean, I've heard from some of you that, that some aspects of it were good. You were able to kind of restructure and, 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 you know, maybe your time with your family, you felt that was lacking. Maybe your time with God was lacking in some ways. And we kind of all had such a big disruption that we were able to learn some lessons from it. And now we're able to come back seeking God or taking care of our family and loving people better. But one lesson that I think we need to learn is do we care about what God cares about? Because if we're not tired of what God cares about and he's saying, then why are you worshiping me? These injustices, um, issues of justice can play out in a lot of different ways today. Of which I'm going to name a few. I don't claim to be able to name them all in one sermon by any stretch. I think of issues like abortion and trafficking. Things that are evil for so many reasons. I could give you probably a hundred verses, but I don't need to because in the very beginning of Genesis, I already see the problem. When God says, I, I, he, look, he made man and he says, I made him in my own image. Meaning he's different from any other animal. Meaning men and, and women are completely different from any other animal that's created. And as being someone created in God's image, you deserve to be treated like that. And abortion is unjust for many reasons, one of which is that it doesn't value someone as if they were made in God's image. Human trafficking is the same problem in a lot of ways, in that it's looking at someone that God loves and made in their image and treating them like an animal that you can ship around and do whatever you want with. Which, the, the very least of which I can say is as despicable and evil as I can think of. I, think, I thought of these two issues. I think in my generation of Christians, trafficking, trafficking has thankfully, awareness has risen and, and people are looking how they can be involved with that. But I, I think with abortion, maybe less so because of either political pressure or we rightfully want to love people who have been through this and we need to lovingly walk through that with them. But not at the expense of not calling it what it unfortunately is. I think of issues like poverty and homelessness. I heard last week that, I think this was at a council meeting or something, that I guess there's about 60-some homeless people in Logan right now. I don't, I don't know if that number has just went up after COVID-19 or, or how that's affected it. I think of as a, as a kid when, when uh, there was a town I would go to every once in a while, they had a, a sign, pretty much their, the sign welcoming you to the town, and then probably like five feet after, a big sign that said no vagrancy. Didn't know what that was as a little kid. And later I, I learned that it could be illegal just to be homeless in that town. To which I think, well, how's that person supposed to get past that? I think of, I think of honestly my own failures when I think of this. I think of times where I, I wish I had done something. 
I think if I was in London five years ago and I, I got off the, the underground, the subway, come up steps and, and I see a, a man with, uh, I mean, and there was, it's a beautiful, amazing city, but there's tons of people that are hurting and, and, and have signs and, and begging or displaced and homeless and a guy that has like a softball-sized festering wound open on his leg. But there's just so many people when I got that subway, I didn't know what to do, so I just kept walking. This is what I'm calling a problem paralysis. When there's just such a big problem, we just don't know what to do. There's just so much of it that it's just, and it's not the right answer. Instead of doing something small or doing our part, we end up just saying, uh, 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 and we keep walking. I think of a time I was in Pittsburgh uh, during vacation. It was a vacation, and I was, I think, taking photos for the day just by myself. Went to get pizza, and as I was eating pizza, I remembered the guy that was on the other side of the street that, that you know, had a sign out and uh, presumably a homeless guy. I go in, I get pizza, and while I'm eating, I, I thought just for a half second, hey, when I leave, I should go on the other side of the street so I don't have to pass that guy. And then I got convicted immediately because I was like, that's like the Good Samaritan story where the Levite literally walks on the other side of the street so that they've walked. Now, it's not exactly the same. This guy wasn't beaten and bloodied and bruised and laying there like within an inch of his life. So not exactly, but, it was, but still I had that same feeling and I felt convicted. Like, oh, I can't just walk past the guy and see what's going on. I, I went over and talked with him a couple minutes, prayed with him. I, I can't remember if I gave him some money or some food or what. But honestly, for every time I've stopped and prayed for someone and, got, and went and got them food or got them money, there's way more times I've done nothing. And again, a lot of it's because, you know, you, and I'm using cities as examples just because there's more people where you just see such a big problem and you know that it needs something, but it's just like, I, I don't know what to do. But I look at Amos 5 and the answer can't be to just be, I don't know what to do. Israel failed to be who God wanted them to be. They had, they had things for this. God spoke about this. In fact, he talked about farming and he said how you're going to get all your crops and there's going to be little bits that are left behind and you leave those so a foreigner can come and take them and, and have some sort of food. There's a system called Jubilee, which we won't get into today, but that, that restored land to people, that, that, that kept a long, generations-long system of debt from forming. And we don't even have uh, evidence that it ever actually happened, but it was given to them by God. And they failed. Lastly, I think of issues of racism and prejudice. And I focus on this a little bit more this morning, not because, not to hold one thing or issue over another or anything, but just because of where we are right now and what's been going on. So that's the reason we focus on a little more to biblically address what is happening. I think of all the ways that this plays out. I mentioned in a sermon before that I grew up in a school district and as a kid didn't understand why on certain streets it seemed weirdly divided. Like, why is that house Blackhawk where I went to school? Why is that house Beer Falls? And it just didn't make any sense. I didn't understand. I didn't think that much of it, but I just noticed it was weird. Until fast forward, I'm in college and a professor of mine who's lived in that area his whole life uh, you know, explain that when that, because he was around when it happened, that when my school district was created in the 70s, lines were drawn around black homes of black families so that a new school district could be created that was, you know, more just one race. Which is, and this was in the 70s. This isn't the 1870s. This isn't 200 years ago. This is, you know, when this school district started 40, 50 years ago. 
I think of issues like sentencing disparities, which I did some research on this week, and this is from Ohio State just last year. They talk about how in the 90s, at worst, a black man who committed a certain crime, if they committed the same sort of crime as a white man and had similar criminal histories, that they could have sentences as much as 42 months longer than the same person who was white. Now, this didn't universally happen all the time, but this was trends that were found. And according to this research from OSU, in 2016, the discrepancy had shrunk down to eight months, which is still bad, which is still longer that someone has to wait to have a second chance of being around for their family and get to try to make right what they made wrong. Lastly, I think of police issues that have been in the news so much lately. And I think one thing the church needs to be so careful of is not to fall into one extreme political gridlock discussion where we're not really listening and where we're just going at each other and not really hearing. Not really hearing people that are calling out against injustice. I've been listening to panels recently. I've been, I've been trying to listen. I, I, I've, uh, a lot of it's just been online. Listening, to Our denomination has put together panels and had chances to listen to people. Uh, you know, met with a police officer this week. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to listen and understand what is going on. Because I, I think we're, we're falling into extremes of, on, on one hand, uh, people are giving violent answers that we cannot biblically support. But on the other hand, I'm afraid that some people are giving answers that are neglectful of what is actually happening. So we, we, we can't react with rage, but, but we also can't be like the Israelites who were supposed to be this people, supposed to be a blessing to the world. God told Abraham, uh, you're gonna, you're, your uh, descendants, your nation is going to be as numerous as the stars. That's how many Israelites there's going to be. I'm going to use you to be a blessing. And they failed. And a lot of that failing wasn't just what they did, but also what they failed to do. So it's it's so easy to to, with this sort of discussion to to latch onto some of these extremes, forgetting that the political and cultural boxes that exist are not only recent, but don't fully encapsulate God, His values, and the kingdom He calls us to. There might be certain things that that uh, political or cultural, that, that, that have some value, but ultimately God, I think, is calling us to rise above that and see what he has to say about this. I wrote a list of rhetorical questions just for us to consider on this issue specifically. Rhetorical questions not just for you, but for me as well. Are we really listening as much as we are speaking and sharing? We're quick to speak. I know I can be. Quick to share. But are we really listening as much as we're speaking? Are we letting articles and statistics, while important, and I've definitely shared mine, keep us from also hearing the testimonies of those who have been mistreated? Are we aware that we personally have seen and heard, or I'm sorry, are we aware that what we have personally have seen and heard is not the totality of experience for other people? There might be things that we don't see and don't hear around here. Maybe that's a good thing that can be celebrated. But do we know that that might not be what all is out there? 
People might have experienced life very differently. Are we like the friends, quote unquote, in the book of Job? Job living pretty much the worst life ever, short of Jesus who had to die for people that didn't care. Job, though, probably second to that is the worst life anyone can think of. All these calamities fall upon him and his so-called friends come up to him and they keep saying, man, your life is terrible. There has to be a way that you sin. There has to be something terrible that you did. And they keep saying, it's gotta be something. Just confess it and this will end. And they don't sit there, they don't say, this is terrible, how can I help you? I mean, this is the guy that had giant boils on his body and was breaking open pottery to scrape them. And they don't, you never hear them say anything about, hey, I wonder how I could help you or can I at least sit with you and experience the pain with you? God ends up chastising and rebuking these so-called friends for that. Are we displaying the fruit of the Spirit when we disagree with how to approach and respond to this and other issues? Through the Spirit, some of which include gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Are we showing things like patience, gentleness, self-control when we discuss this, and when, especially when we disagree? What are we more tired of, these debates that are going on right now? Are we more tired of talking about it or the actual injustices themselves? Because it's so easy to be so over a conversation and I, and I get it. And maybe you're like, I'm tired of both. But if we're only actually tired of the conversations and not the injustices, then we're missing what God is calling us to. And look, please hear my heart. I'm not, this isn't anything against like police or trying to bash anything. This isn't anything like that. Um, and honestly, a lot of those, some of those issues like the redlining and stuff, that, that has nothing to do with police officers. Um, you know, that's a totally separate form of injustice. So we're not here to dishonor anyone. We're not here to have violent answers or, or anything that God wouldn't, or that God would actively speaks against. Instead, I look at Amos 5 and I think, are we humbly listening and acknowledging injustice and then asking that God would give us answers to how to approach and deal with it. Last, my last question, and most importantly, are we sure that our opinions are led by Scripture and the Holy Spirit and not just political or cultural talking points? Are we humbly submitting ourselves and, and asking how I feel about this? Because sometimes we can you know, quickly launch into a feeling. I know that, myself included. But are we submitting and saying that's actually what God wants us to do? Are we loving our neighbors by listening to them? And in light of that, um, we're going to play a clip here in a second. This clip, um, it's a five-minute thing, but I want you to be able to hear this. It's a clip from a, a pastor named Sheldon who I don't really know well. I, I, I booked him at my last church to do some security training. He's now a pastor, but he served years in the military and law enforcement. He does like use of force training. He was in SWAT. So he's got, a, he's got a, a very good perspective on some of the things that have been happening. And uh, want to be able to hear his heart and hear what he has to say. If we go ahead and play that clip. I'm thankful for the voice of video. And I say that because absent a video, I don't know that we would be as much involved and aware. There are some of us who are aware of those, and that's where I'm somewhat disturbed and distraught as well. Because in relationships, 
you're able to hear my voice. You're able to hear my heart. But it bothers me that it takes evidence of a video for people to want to jump on board and say, that's injustice. Well, you should also see where it's injustice when we communicate the problems that we sense and we feel when we see these things happening, because they're not isolated, may not always result in somebody's death. It may result in incarceration that wasn't supposed to be. It may result in somebody not being served appropriately like someone else because of their color of their skin. And what I like to say is so many people are quick to tell me or tell others how they don't see color. I know it's well-intentioned. The color doesn't matter. That's probably a better thing. Your skin tone doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. Don't devalue who I am by saying I don't see color. The first thing you're going to see is that I'm an African-American. So don't devalue that. And I know what they're trying to say. It doesn't matter. But even for some who try to purport that they are so blind to skin tone, turn around and show their deafness to the tone of the voice and the tenor of what people are trying to say. You're tone deaf, even when you're trying to say, I'm trying to be blind to skin tone. So you, 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 you exchange one for the other. Hear the hearts. And then I'm just as <laughs> bothered by the actions of law enforcement, understanding that this happens and where people from my life, I'm 51 years old coming next month, couple days actually, and throughout my career, I have modeled myself to try to make as much impact. Many know that I served faithfully in law enforcement and in the military, retired from both, served the majority of my adult life in military and law enforcement. And I, I get accolades for that level of service, and people appreciate that. But it's as if I have to cloak myself in a uniform to be more widely accepted or be able to generate where I have served, whereas this thing that I'm cloaked in all the time doesn't get the same level of attention or gets minimized because this is the thing that I wear all the time. It's not the military uniform that I throw on, not the police uniform that I throw on. It's not the representation of the pastoral calling that I have. I am a human being. So I'm bothered by the independence, declaration of independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by the creator certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. It's supposed to be for all. And I'm telling you, for people that look like me, they don't get those opportunities. They're criminalized based off of the color of their skin. And I've seen it personally in my own life, challenged by, try to make change where we can, but also having to raise children that have to have the same experiences. Two of the three of my children serve in the same capacities as I did. Two of them went to the military. One of those two then continued on in public safety, a son. Here I am, a career law enforcement officer who has stickers and emblems identifying me as such, badges and identification in, pocket, in my pocket that says I am part of to think that we were exempt from those examples. I've been pulled over improperly because of somebody being aggressive in their law enforcement actions. My son has been pulled over inappropriately because why? They look suspicious. The only thing suspicious about me in the mind at that time, however you wanted to justify it, 
was that I happened to be black at the moment. There was no justification. And why can I say that so passionately? Because I know the law. By what measure, by my, the interview you come up, what are you stopping me for? You can't make up a tail light. You can't say that I didn't use a turn signal. So my point is, is that at the root, there's something else, that implicit bias, subconscious bias, that many of us hold to say that we don't even have, even as African-Americans, we have our own biases as well. And we can't hold on to that if we're going to be in relationship. It gives me the opportunity to share my heart, walk together in journey. And I'll close with this. I'm thankful for ACAC. I didn't come here to just be part of, of, of some club that was wearing this banner of diversity to say I'm included. It was the passion and the pursuit and the deep dive into that to say, no, we're going to live this thing out. It's not going to be in word only. It's going to be in deed. And I'm thankful God called me to this congregation. So Sheldon is now an alliance pastor with our denomination. And, you know, I've been listening to the panels and, and I really appreciate his perspective. And so, um, especially as a, as a police officer and, and uh, among other things. But as I've been listening to these panels and, and they're talking and what a good bit of um, specifically black pastors in our, in our district with the Alliance have been sharing is, is they're saying, we, we need people to listen. They said, you know, a lot of us have been on streets serving people and, and listening and talking and they're like, you know, some of them in big cities and they're like, the vast majority of what I see is not violent out there. I mean, yeah, they said they have definitely seen it. We've seen it. They're not denying that by any stretch. And they denounce that wholeheartedly. But they're saying, we need people to listen. Some of them have even said, we're, we're sick of talking about it. We're sick of talking about it and feeling like the church isn't listening to us. Philippians 2. We end with Jesus, of course, because the, the problem in the Old Testament that Amos was getting at God is saying, Israel, I called you, I set you apart so that you can be different, so that you can lead the way, so that you can serve people humbly, that you can love them well. The beginning of this year, I think my first sermon of the year, we had people up here reading from Revelation. And the rebukes that Jesus gave to the church were basically the same thing. Jesus saying, I died for you. I, I died so I could build my church and here you are. And it wasn't just this issue in Revelation. A lot of it's idolatry and, and other sorts of sins and, and forgetting their first love. But essentially, Jesus is saying, you aren't being the people I called you to be. Philippians 2. If then there, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of a humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12. 
Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. I'm not here today to give you an answer to how, to, how we have to respond to all this, because you shouldn't want my answer. We should want the answer of God himself through his Holy Spirit leading us. We should be seeking God so that we can follow Jesus' humble example and actually love God in a way that he would be pleased with our worship. Imagine if, you know, we're greeting next week and, and you know, someone comes in and says, Hi, welcome to Antioch Alcline's Church, a place that God hates our worship, a place that God thinks it stinks. No one would like that. And I'm not saying we've failed at every, at every possible thing and to the utmost degree by any stretch, but I'm saying, are we actually tired of what God is tired of? And it wasn't just these justice issues, a lot of other things and throughout the prophets. But are we tired of the things that God's tired of? Does our heart break over the thing that God says his own heart breaks over? And I don't read about Jesus so that we can look at Jesus as a list of morals and be like, oh, all right, guys, let's uh, do better doing what Jesus did. I read it because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit who can shape our hearts to be people that will worship correctly, that will grow in love of God above all else, in love of neighbors as ourselves. And on a lot of these issues, it's, I, we need to seek God and we need to listen to him and also to, to people that have been through injustice. I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, we, we don't have a closing song, so I'm just going to go ahead and close this in prayer. And then the, the back couple rows, uh, you guys can head out, and then the rest of you can filter out. Feel free to hang out outside and picnic benches, or, uh, but we've got to clean up in here. So um, let's go ahead and, and close in prayer.